Content warning. This episode contains some graphic accounts taken from survivors' narratives of violence experienced with enforced marriages. Hello, I'm Helen McCabe from the University of Nottingham. Welcome to the Forced Marriage Research Podcast, where we explore concepts, contexts, and contemporary challenges. Hi, welcome back to the Forced Marriage Research Podcast and thanks for tuning in. In this episode, we'll be continuing the conversation with now officially Dr. Lauren Eglin on what survivor narratives can tell us about the relationship between forced marriage and modern slavery. Hi, Helen. Thanks for having me back on the podcast. Really looking forward to chatting some more about the narratives. My pleasure. Last time we talked about how narratives in the Voices archive show us that forced marriage can be a form of modern slavery where control tantamount to possession or the powers associated with property ownership are being exercised by one person over another. And we talked about how instances of women and girls being bought and sold for the purpose of marriage and how inside forced marriages they can experience forced labour, in particular domestic servitude, to the financial and social benefit of their husbands and in-laws. And you gave some really great examples from the narrative's archive. But in our research and in your analysis of the narratives, you've also found that forced marriage can involve and increase the risk of other forms of exploitation, or at least that's how I understand what we've been talking about um, offline, as it were. So I'm um, just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so first off, the International Labour Organization and Walk Free Foundation, um, in their global estimates, they suggest that forced marriage can also lead to a loss of women and girls' sexual autonomy. And this is something we saw evidenced in the narratives Mm. as well. Um, So some of the narratives and the survivors in the narratives talk about how their reproductive labour is exploited and controlled um, and others even experience commercial sexual exploitation and forced prostitution. And particularly narratives from China and regions of India that have a preference for sons and had the single child laws and um, they've resulted in fewer women than men in these regions. Mm-hmm. Um, and women and girls in these locations are sometimes forced into marriage to provide a service. So we find from the survivors' accounts, um, they talk about essentially being forced into the marriage for the express purpose of producing children, which is an interesting and horrible aspect of forced marriage that's sometimes akin to modern slavery. Um, so example, there's... Seng Jia Ban, who was working in China when she was kidnapped by two Chinese men, and she was forced into a marriage to another Chinese man, mm. um, purely to give birth to his child. Um, she describes how she was, quote, locked in the room for one year, um, and how before she had a baby, um, she says that, quote, the family members, especially the mother-in-law, treated me badly. Her face was furious. Sometimes they didn't feed me because I didn't get pregnant as soon as possible, end quote. Um, And she also talks about how she was even given medication to encourage conception. Um, And she states, once a week I was injected. Sometimes I had a big drip of intravenous fluid. Every week they took me to the clinic. I did not know what the medicine was or why I had to take it. Sometimes I had to try herbal medicine and they cooked it and boiled it and I had to drink it. I assume it was to make me pregnant. It's a really harrowing account, really, of her experiences. And I, I, I say another element of forced marriage that I guess maybe marriage ends up being a euphemism when you're actually like, what is it? Well, it's providing sexual services and it's having children and it's providing domestic service. And marriage makes it sound a lot more pleasant when we think about the wedding and everything. But 
it's obvious that um, Seng Jaban was being used in this marriage by her in-laws purely to conceive a child. And she had no control over her own body or medical care. Like she didn't know what she was even taking, never mind when she was going. I think it's a really interesting mix there between really like different kinds of medicine and families obviously really desperate for there to be a son in particular, right? For um, um, going to really extreme, extreme lengths, but yeah, with no thought at all about the human being that they're exploiting in that process. Um, so her narrative really demonstrates the gendered nature of the violence that can be perpetrated against women and girls when they're forced into marriages. And obviously we, we know that men are, are also forced into marriages, but there does seem to be this real thing about being able to have babies. Yeah, it seems a very... Well, obviously, a very gender-specific mm. phenomenon and experience yeah. that they have within those false marriages. I'm interested to see if it applies to men as well, but you have to do some more research about about yeah. that. <laughs> um, but it seems implicit from the very term "forced marriage" um, that women and girls forced into marriages are subject to physical and also sexual abuse, both as a means of forcing them to marry, and then once they are married, um, and the ILO and Walk Free make a really clear link between forced marriage and certain kinds of forced labour as we mentioned last time, so forced domestic labour that's done outside of the commercial economy. And last time, I guess, as I say, we talked about examples of that amounting to slavery. But these examples show that women and girls who are forced to marry can also be exploited in terms of their reproductive labour and their reproductive capacities. So do you think this is another example of how women and girls can be seen as commodities that are being used in these marriages and that they're subject to the arbitrary will of their husbands and in-laws and they're kind of being used as property because they're being commodified? Yeah, yeah, I think I think it does show that. Um, and Seng Jaban in her narrative um, says, "After we gave birth, no one kept, no one cared about us anymore." And I think that really brings home how she was being used in the marriage as this commodity, and how the marriage was in effect a guise for the exploitation of her reproductive labour. And I think when in other forms of modern slavery and in other situations and contexts, when we talk about forced labour. We're very much talking about the traditional idea of work. Mm. And I don't think that encapsulates reproductive labour as a form of labour that can be exploited mm. as well. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in the Paloma Protocol, like, organ harvesting is really specifically mentioned. And obviously that often ends up with people being dead. But it's not it's not organ harvesting, but it's like it is still this like making use of someone's organs in the, yeah, yeah, making like, use yeah. of their body in a very very physical yeah, way yeah um and i think what's more with Seng jaban in her narrative she was subjected to forced sterilization during her childbirth um that she was completely unaware mm. of at the time um she says i did not give birth naturally i had to have an operation when i did this the chinese family told the doctor to cut a part of my womb so that i could not have any more children i didn't know this at the time and when i came back to myanmar I went to hospital and got news and was told that part of my womb doesn't work so I cannot have a baby. So kind of, as well as modern slavery and the exploitation of her reproductive labour um, within her false marriage, we can see it involved a fundamental violation of women's reproductive rights as well and loss of control over their bodies. Yeah, and I remember when I first read that narrative, how just overwhelmingly sad it is, like just that that's really happened to somebody um, and presumably happened to lots of other people as well. This is just the one record that's in the narrative database. I mean, going back to my history, American history background, the long, not, but the long racialized nature of black motherhood in the US. And there's a lot of false sterilization cares and even like um, white working class, Native American, Latina women yeah, and I guess there's a racial element in Chinese relations with other countries around as well, which is would be interesting area to explore for 
for other people researching trafficking into China and, and the treatment of people who are trafficked into China. And I guess, I mean, it's just because we're out of all these awful situations, it just seems really puzzling that our in-laws would do that. Um, I mean, I guess that this probably happened when China still had a one-child policy, so the narrative from before 2016, and so they wouldn't want her to have any more children because of the difficulties that that would um, create. But from her narrative, it just seemed like they weren't even interested in keeping her in China once yeah. she'd had a baby. It's not like they're going to keep her to do other wifely duties like yeah. domestic, you know, domestic surgery on the house, household labour, um, provide sexual services, um, but with no risk of her getting pregnant. That they just wanted to keep her child and obviously she ended up back in Myanmar. But they still seemed concerned not to let her have children with anybody else. But obviously we, we don't know all the details and maybe they changed their mind about whether she would stay as a wife there or whatever. But... Yeah, I guess if they had meant her to stay married to the man she'd been forced to marry, then this would be another sign of a really cruel way of ensuring her sexual labour without any consequences, um, particularly about the consequences of, of, of having children. So knowing the premium that people put on having a male child in lots of countries across the world, I also wondered if what they would have done if she'd given birth to a girl and if they would have asked the doctor to do the same thing. Although obviously with the one-child policy, one child was one, that was it. Or what they might have done if medical tests before she'd given birth, which it looks like she might have been subject to, given yeah, the narrative, yeah, so um, had shown that she was going to have a girl. Because I know you find evidence about in-laws forcing women who've been forced to marry their sons not only to have children, but to have abortions until they've had a boy. Yeah, yeah. There's a case in the archive um, with a girl called Shalaya, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and she's from India, so different country context. Um, but she was forced to be married to her cousin at either 13 or 14 years old. Um, and in her narrative, we see how this preference for sons in some regions contributes to the experiences of sexual abuse and violations of reproductive rights. Um, so after she gets married, she becomes pregnant very quickly, but has a miscarriage due to overwork. But then she becomes pregnant again within two months of that miscarriage. And she remembers, she says, this time my mother took over my work and I successfully gave birth to a baby girl. The family, including my mother-in-law, was unhappy and hurled abuse at me. And six months later, I was pregnant again. My husband and my mother insisted that I get my fetus scanned to find out if, I, if it was a girl or a boy. They found out that it was a girl and forced me to have an abortion. I resisted, but they would not listen and got the doctor to induce an abortion. Four months later, I got pregnant again. This is my fourth pregnancy. My mother-in-law is abusing me in anticipation that I would give birth to another girl. I mean, the other interesting thing about that narrative is that her mother, her own mother's involved, isn't it? Like part of it look, and part of it sounds like the mum is just doing her best to support her daughter after the marriage. So she yeah. says that she takes over some of her work. But then it sounds like it's both a husband and a mother who are insisting on getting the fetus scanned yeah. and therefore presumably trying to... Yeah, I'm not sure if that's maybe like a type and it's meant to be her mother-in-law insisting getting the fetus scanned. I think it's a... In her narrative, it's very interesting dynamic between what I assume is her mother and her mother-in-law and her mother taking over the work so that she can have a successful healthy pregnancy but her mother-in-law obviously being part of the yeah abuse. but interesting isn't it whether how much a mum's interested in it being a healthy successful pregnancy so long as it's a boy yeah and I guess as she's married a cousin the whole family's yeah. interest in the being a, a, a male child is involved isn't it and I just think it's it's fascinating because I think these narratives really highlight the role that women play in forced marriages um not just as victims um and I think we tend to think it's all men doing the forcing 
and mainly women and girls who are being forced. But obviously there's a lot of social and economic pressure on women, not only to have sons, but also to have grandsons. And I know there's an interesting, there's some interesting research on how patriarchal societies where women in particular tend to go and live with their in-laws when they marry, that this alienates women from their daughters who are seen as a burden on the household and who'll go and look after their husband's mother in her old age, whereas women rely on their sons and their sons getting married and having wives for, um, for any security and care in their old age. And that must make for, I mean, family dynamics are always really complicated, <laughs> right? But must make for particularly difficult um, family dynamics that I guess we sort of see playing out in this narrative a little bit. Women's involvement in trafficking and sexual exploitation is obviously really complicated and often overlooked. <clears throat> I guess that's been brought to light recently in, in Ghislaine Maxwell's trial um, and everyone's response to it, or at least the media's response to it. And there's obviously a huge amount of research and work done to understand the dynamics of women who um, traffic other women into experiences that they've had and must have known were horrific. And I guess it's easy from my perspective here in academia just to find it kind of amazing that women perpetrate the same kind of abuse on their own daughters and their own daughters-in-law that they themselves experienced but that's often the case as we see from from research and from the narratives and it's very well documented um, and even in the early 19th century one of the philosophers I spend a lot of my time studying, um, Harriet Taylor Mill, noticed that women who live in really hierarchical and patriarchal societies like her own in late Georgian England and who also live in hierarchical, patriarchal and often violent homes lack the power to resist their husbands but as, a, but as a sort of compensation exert as much power as possible over those who are weaker than them or in more vulnerable positions to them and um, leading in some famous cases in the news that she's commenting on to them abusing children and servants working in their homes so severely in some cases that the children and domestic servants died and then there was kind of whether people were found properly responsible in the court or, you know were courts doing the right thing to defend children and domestic servants there's a lot of research as well going back to my American history I won't go back too much and too often um, but there's a lot of research done on how obviously white women slave earners um, relate and their relationships with black women who are enslaved yeah. um, and there's some really interesting research there on how there's the protection of white womanhood but for white women to protect their status yeah. they are involved obviously in the exploitation and yeah, for the women. violence against black women yeah yeah, yeah. and what you're finding in the narrative archive really hi highlights this issue doesn't it and that it's not gone away um, it's not just an historical historical issue um and i guess how much more research there needs to be on perpetrators um who they are what the motives are and what might them make them change their behavior because it looks like there's probably always going to be vulnerable people, but it's who are they vulnerable to? Like, why are people preying on them, I guess? So as well as showing this cycle of violence and forced marriage, I guess the narratives also show another cycle, don't they, which we're going to need to break if we're going to end forced marriage by 2030, which is ever closer, as now this is the first podcast of 2022. Um, so people looking for women to marry their sons because of gender selection in their son's generation. And in some cases, they're turning to trafficking and forced marriage to get women to marry their sons but then they're insisting that these women have to have a boy so they're ensuring that disparity in the number of male and female children born in their society will continue into another generation there'll still be all these missing girls as people talk about it <clears throat> so that son whose mother had to be trafficked will need in all likelihood another trafficked bride and that's a cycle that could be never-ending so long as it's possible to traffic women and girls for marriage, like as long as there are people vulnerable to that and people willing to do it. And it seems like where there's a demand for traffic women, then there will always be traffickers willing to try and meet it depressingly. Yeah, I think especially with the economic benefits, which I assume yeah. is a 
the massive motivation to yeah, traffic and obviously people demand themselves. for um, women's reproductive labour until we can grow babies in test tubes like actually um, people are going to need to traffic people in so if, they, if that's what they want is um, the ne- you know next generation that's predominantly male speaking of the people who traffic people into forced marriages I think you mentioned earlier that as well as sexual abuse inside marriages some survivors in the archive also report how their husbands were perpetrators of their commercial sexual exploitation and either forced or threatened to force them into prostitution which is another form of modern slavery is that is that right yeah yeah there's a few examples um especially a very interesting trafficking route from albania um and sometimes to greece and then back to albania and then to italy but that kind of circuit um and we see in the archive there are some examples of the way forced marriage can sometimes act as this cover for for perpetrators who then force their so-called wives into prostitution um so we've got the example of i which is i assume a pseudonym um from albania who was forcibly married by her parents to a man they called g um who persuaded her to travel to italy on a fake passport promising her a better life for them together so she remembers and she says, there in Italy, G paid 450 euros for a house and told me that I had to work to pay for the rent and also to help my parents. He told me he would find a job for me as, and soon brought home a girl to teach me. When I realised what kind of job he was talking about, I refused, saying to G that when someone loves his wife, it would not be acceptable for him to allow her to do this kind of work. Um, he promised me we would buy a house in Tirana and we would live together in Tirana. I accepted and started working with that girl, giving all the profits to him. After a week or so, I found a picture of G and his wife and started quarrelling with him. In this really tragic instance, right, the intention is never for it to be a marriage at all. He's already married. Not for him, yeah. Yeah, but rather that the marriage facilitates the exploitation and trafficking experience. I guess it's really interesting about how how he must have come across to her parents and what what they were seeing as a getting out of it and then this promise they'll go back to Albania and, and live together and just do this yeah, yeah it's very do common tra- yeah very yeah. common traffic story isn't it but I guess I want to think about this relationship between forced marriage and trafficking because the archive suggests that forced marriage almost always involves human trafficking right as mm-hmm. women and girls are moved whether that's across borders like we talked about China to Myanmar um, North Korea to China Albania to Italy, or within countries or local regions, or the same village really, just from one house to another. Um, so from their parents' house to their husband and in-law's house, which sounds like, in, we were just talking about the case in India, sounds pretty close, right? My mum came around and helped with the domestic labour, so probably very, you know, same street as it were, but it's still movement, isn't it? And in all the cases we're looking at, the purposes for exploitation of different kinds that we've been discussing on this podcast, and in most cases, um, there's also like evident use of force. And what's more, given the definition of trafficking, if we go by the Paloma Protocol, even where we see in the narrative archive cases involving children where there's no obvious use of force, then that's still kind of trafficking, right? Because the movement and the exploitation are evidently present and you don't have to be able to prove force to show that yeah. children were trafficked. Yeah, so there are a few examples of where this is the case because obviously forced marriages involving children almost always involve them being forced to go and live with their husbands and in-laws. Um, so Shalea, who we were talking about earlier, mm. um, who was married to her cousin, um, she said, I did not want to live alone with him, um, but she had to. And Asil, who we mentioned in the last episode, mm-hmm. which if you haven't listened to, go and listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was forced to marry a 21-year-old man when she was 13. And she stated, just matter of fact, like, I went to go and live with, she went to go and live with her mother-in-law, where she was then forced to perform domestic labour in her mother-in-law's house. And then her mother-in-law forced her to perform 
domestic service in other people's houses as well. Um, and she experienced violence at the hands of her mother-in-law and husband who withheld her earnings. Um, and there are also even more obvious examples, for the example, the ones which involve being trafficked to China and North Korea, to China from North Korea that we talked about, um, or the ones we just discussed involving women from Albania. And so because forced marriages lead to the transportation or transfer of a person to another location, whether that's abroad in a different city in the same country or even, as we've said, down the road in the same community, if they've been transferred to another location or to another person for the purpose of them being exploited in these different ways that we're talking about through forced labour and sexual exploitation, and we can we can see that forced marriages almost always involve trafficking. And we find in the narratives, haven't we, that exploitation and trafficking can result from forced marriages, even when they don't occur within the marriage, mm-hmm. and the husbands and in-laws are not the perpetrators. So it looks like being in a forced marriage itself increases the risk of trafficking, exploitation and modern slavery, even separate from how they might have got into the forced marriage in the first place. Yeah, yeah. In the archive, there's a couple of examples where women and girls have been trafficked and exploited as a result of trying to leave their forced marriages. So being in that forced marriage in the first instance and trying to escape that makes you more vulnerable to further trafficking. Um, We've got the example of Odetta, who was married at 14, but she recalls that this lasted only three weeks because he began to beat me regularly. And it was on the promise of a consensual marriage with a neighbour living close to them and that she was able to escape her false marriage but she was deceived and trafficked for commercial sexual exploitation across Europe um, so she says a neighbour of mine promised to go and find a job in Italy for me so again it's this mm. I think it's another Albania to Italy he also proposed to me and asked me to marry him I accepted and ran away secretly from home hiding with him in the same city where I was born There was a Russian girl hiding in the house as well. I was not comfortable with this new situation, but I had no other way. So I just stayed and waited for things to happen. And so from the house in Albania, Odetta was taken to Italy by boat, where she remembers, um, quote, we stayed there in another house where this woman who used to teach us how to work the streets. At the beginning, I refused to do this type of work, but I was beaten all day and night. They threatened to kill me as well. So I was obliged to work as a prostitute, end quote. Um, So Odetta, in her narrative, describes she worked on the streets for around three weeks, was forced to give all her money to this Albanian boy that had taken her to Italy. Um, And she was, after this amount of time, caught by the police and returned to Albania. Where, who knows what, I mean, presumably then she met the NGO that took a narrative and there was some help and support, but obviously the fact that she was in hiding from her first husband, couldn't couldn't go from him to seek help from her parents after she ended up in an abusive marriage, presumably because they'd forced her into the forced marriage and weren't sympathetic. And that there's obviously vulnerability to trafficking. I guess it's one of those stories you think this is just going to end in re-trafficking, right? Like what, what options will she end up having once the police have deported her to Albania? But what I guess Odetta's narrative also suggests is women and girls forced into marriage can be at an increased risk of further exploitation, uh, modern slavery and human trafficking, in their efforts to escape their marriages. So there's exploitation that's going to happen if they stay, but then there's this real vulnerability if they leave. So particularly if they've nowhere to go, right, once they've left the forced marriage, um, perhaps because of social stigma of women who leave the husband. Yeah, and there are there are a couple of examples in the archive where the woman or girl is abused in the marriage. She tells her parents and they are sympathetic yeah. and and allow her and it's because she still has to have their permission to leave but they help her leave but there are most instances when women and girls escape their marriages there's not very much social support from parents or community and it's really interesting isn't it because it shows how complex the relationship between forced marriage and modern slavery and trafficking 
really is when we look at all the different ways that things these things interact. So we talked in the last episode about women and girls talking about being like actually bought and sold and their husbands and in-laws referring to owning them. And we heard how they experience forced labour in domestic and agricultural work and how forced marriage can be seen as a form of slavery and form and substance in, in those ways. And this episode, we're looking at, we've looked at how forced marriage can also lead to and involve other forms of exploitation, trafficking and modern slavery, including sexual abuse, loss of sexual autonomy, violation of reproductive rights and commercial sexual exploitation. And I guess it shows just how important it was that the ILO and Walk Free like recognise that that's one of the things that happens in a forced marriage. So it's this combination between a loss of sexual autonomy and being forced to labour in a domestic setting, doing work that is not usually recognised and commercially um, recompensed, though sometimes it is, we work as cleaners, but this reproductive labour often isn't, right? Especially as it's often illegal to pay somebody to be a surrogate. So it's kind of, we have these yeah, normative concerns about whether people should be paid for their reproductive labour. So current policy research on the relationship between forced marriage and modern slavery focuses on the moment of marriage um, and the ceremony asking, did someone consent when the marriage contract, as it were, was made. And from what we've been discussing here and in the previous episode, it really seems like this focus on, on what might be the form, to borrow terminology from John Alain, right, and not the substance, neglects and disguises the multitude of types of exploitation and practices similar to slavery, and even slavery itself, that occur during a forced marriage, which are revealed by analysing the narratives of survivors. And it's not to say that forcing somebody to get married is, is not a problem or a rights violation or a harm. It's just that there's all these other ones as well that yeah. seem to get missed by focusing solely on did somebody consent. And I guess which we've been saying previously, haven't we? Even if somebody did consent, and there are some examples where, you know, she went, went with this guy yeah. and then she ended up being commercially sexually exploited. So seems like some of these elements can happen in marriages that might have started out more or less consensually. I mean, it's hard to say she consented when it turns out she's tricked, but, you know, kind of less obviously forced than, than what sounds like the first example. So that this focus on the initial ceremony seems a bit, a bit misplaced. It certainly seems really clear that this should be further researched and better understood by policymakers um, with the ILO and Walk Freeze highlighting of the forced labour and loss of sexual autonomy inherent in so many forced marriages, a really welcome start. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think... Obviously, false marriage is a global problem that affects millions of people. Um, according to global estimates, 15.4 million people worldwide. Um, and it is mainly in women and girls. Also, there are some men and we're doing some more research to see if we can find some more male narratives, which I think are becoming more of a focus. But then still, the UNICEF global statistics suggest that men are forced into marriage or men and boys are forced into marriage at only a fifth of the rate of women and girls. So it is still majoritively women and girls. And the narrative suggests that kind of like this current focus on whether or not spouses give their full and free consent, this focus on form, I think it is too narrow. I think it's important to still have it, but I think it should be as well as looking at the substance. So looking at how they're forced into marriage, but also then what happens after. Um, and I think doing this there's the clear links to de facto slavery institutions and practices similar to slavery and then the forced labor sexual exploitation the trafficking and domestic servitude and all the other forms of exploitations become evident that we've been talking about yeah and that's something that policymakers should really be thinking about and people all of us working in the field to kind of well in this field academically but also on the ground in the actual field to try and end it should perhaps be bearing in mind as well great well that sounds like an excellent place to end this many many thanks dr eglin for coming on the podcast again to, to listeners thanks very much if you've tuned in listening to the narratives can be really difficult 
more than welcome to go and read them for yourselves on the Voices Archive, but with a kind of content warning, like a very strong content warning. Like obviously there's some really, really graphic and horrific accounts of what's happened to people. Um, but it does seem important to recognise that very clearly when we're studying this this topic. It's not just an academic subject in that sense. It's a real horrific thing that happens to real people every single second of the day. And that's why the narratives are important. Mm. Difficult to read. Again, definite content trigger warnings, um, but definitely go have a look at them. Um, I'll give you the website again. I think we mentioned it in the last one, but it's mm. antislavery.ac.uk slash narratives. Great. So I'm sure that Dr. Eglin will feature in some future episodes as our work um, continues on this project. But many thanks again and many thanks to everybody for tuning in and listening. Helen is based with the Rights Lab, a University of Nottingham beacon of research excellence. She is an assistant professor in the School of Politics and International Relations. Her forced marriage research is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the Economic and Social Research Council. Please don't forget to subscribe to be notified on upcoming episodes. For more information, please visit our website, forcedmarriageresearch.ac.uk.